Hello, I'm Peter Moore, and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Colourgraph. I'm Peter Moore. Today we're heading back to the very heart of Nazi Germany with the best-selling novelist Simon Scarrow. We're very used to thinking about the opening stages of the Second World War from Britain's point of view. We think, for example, about the news of the September invasion of Poland by Germany, about Neville Chamberlain's crackled declaration of war on the wireless, and then we think about the unsettling phony war of the months that followed. But what was the atmosphere like in Germany at this time? What was the winter of 1939-40 like for a Berliner who was coming to terms with the reality of yet another conflict against France and Great Britain? Answering questions like these is today's guest. Simon Scarrow is a number one best-selling novelist known particularly for his Eagles of the Empire series, which is set in ancient Rome. Now to a good deal of excitement, Simon's embarking on a new series of books set against the backdrop of the Second World War. The first of these is called Blackout, and it's newly released. We have a couple of hardback copies of Blackout to give away. Have a look in our show notes to see how you can be in with a chance of winning one. Otherwise, here's Simon taking me back on a travel through time. Welcome Simon Scarrow to Travels Through Time. Well, welcome to you, Peter. It's lovely to uh, hook up in these times of lockdown. It is. And uh, I suppose if people were guessing what we're going to talk about today, saying, well, Simon Scarrow is going to come on. Of course, we're going to be going back to millennia, to ancient Rome. But we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to talk about your new book, which is Blackout Berlin. So instead of two millennia, we're going to go back just 80 years or so. So we'll get into the detail of that first. But I thought it'd be really nice if you could just introduce this new book and give us a flavour of what to expect and why, more than, more than anything, why you've been driven to write it. You know, the thing is, I think there's a danger when you write a long series that people identify almost exclusively in terms of that series. So, And the reality is that I've been interested in, in the sort of complete wide range of history um, and it's not just Roman uh, Roman history I'm interested in, that, that particularly, and that's where I've been most successful. But I have written about the French Revolution. I've also written about the Siege of Malta in 1565. And I've also written about the Second World War in a book called um, Hearts of Stone. And uh, have for a number of years wanted to write a, a crime novel set in, in Alderney during the Second World War, because it's the, the only place on British soil where there was a concentration camp. And by all accounts, it was a, it was a fairly kind of horrendous uh, setting um, for Spanish political prisoners sent by Franco, but Russians, um, some French as well, um, all sent to this sort of island that's only three and a half miles long and about a mile and a half wide. And I thought that would be a brilliant setting for a, 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 a sort of mystery murder uh, type novel. Um, so I had a, a German officer who was going to be sent there to investigate this. But then the question, you know, when you're thinking these things through, you, you have to ask yourself, okay, well, why would anybody, what would they would have to have done in order to be punished by being sent to Alderney. So then I thought, okay, well, if he's a criminal investigator in Berlin, 
what could he have done? So I basically kind of tracked back and I started doing the research into Berlin and um, the criminal investigation division of the German police. And whilst I was doing this, uh, the, the, all sorts of amazing things were sort of coming up. This is the, you know, the, the absolute peril of doing research for a book is it inevitably turns out to be researched for at least half a dozen. Very true. And so I came across this reference to a serial killer in, who operated in 1940 to 41 um, on the um, S-Bahn system. Um, but I was more interested in the, the early days of the war, 1939 through into 40, uh, particularly that winter, which was the harshest on record. You know, the temperatures just dropped to sort of 20 below and stayed there for the best part of three months. And there was thick snow everywhere. And then you got the blackout. But you've also got this weird part of the war where the Germans are convinced that it's, it's about to come to an end because they've conquered Poland. Poland was the excuse for the French and British to declare war on Germany. Now that doesn't exist anymore. Why would they want to continue fighting the war? So there is this sense that, you know, peace is just around the corner. So... I thought there was a, a absolutely wonderful kind of combination of factors around which to spin this particular story um, about a search for a serial killer against the backdrop of this winter, the start of the war. It is, and it's, it is an amazing setting. And it's also, at once, it's really quite familiar to us, but then it's unfamiliar at the same time because we're so used to talking about the beginning stages of the Second World War and we have the point of view of the British, well, over here, of course, and the Allies more broadly. But it's um, it's that clever twist that you do. It's the kind of das boot moment when you, you, you kind of switch sides. And I realised, I was really struck by how little I'd thought of what um september 1939 through the next month was like in in berlin because it's a um it's a time which i suppose after a lot of uncertainty you begin to have clarity at least as a war because there'd been you know lots of um you know kind of noises on both sides for a long time and um i i knew nothing at all about this very cold winter which you uh which you describe and I want to ask you just a little bit more if you can enlarge on that because it sounds really quite severe. Well, you know, it was um, severe, yeah, and it was compounded. The suffering of the people in Berlin was compounded by the fact they'd already had uh, rationing of one sort or another for a number of years because, the, you know, every kind of thinks that there's this kind of version of Nazi Germany that you hear troughed out so often, but yes, but at least they made the trains run on time and everything was efficient and, you know, all this sort of stuff. In actual fact, um, as I think it's Richard Evans, the historian documents quite thoroughly, is that this was a time of enormous hardship because the Nazi party were basically bankrupting the, the country to prepare for war by you know, every available penny, everything was directed towards uh, war aims. So they, they had rationing already. And then by the time the war came along, um, because of the need to use the trains to ship troops and, and tanks around, there was a shortage of coal in Berlin. So it was almost impossible to get, uh, you know, people scavenging around to try and find things to, to burn, to keep the heating going, keep the, war, you know, the, uh, the water warm and, and things like this. So you've got a, a lot of you know, material discomforts before you even get to the fear of bombers. And then you've got the fear of, of the darkness because this was a city that like any great cosmopolitan city was bathed in light um, come nightfall. And then all of a sudden it's pitch black and you've got accidents going up. Um, 
you know, a lot of people are being killed in, in road accidents because they, they just wander out in front of a car and get whacked or, you know, um, knocked over by a bicycle or something. People slipping off pavements. So they're having to paint the curbstones white and, and in some cases with luminous paint just to sort of make that a bit safer. And then just people bumping into each other. And then you've got crime as well because, you know, this is a, a mugger's paradise and, and also, you know, sexual offenders' paradise. Hmm. One thing um, I wanted just to ask you as well before we really get going and uh, it is going to lead back to the ancient world again because I was thinking about uh, Robert Harris's works of course because he's another novelist who has looked um, particularly at Cicero and then he's looked at um, you know the, the early years of the second world war he just written his book on the, the v2 bomb and I remember him saying something once that he was just interested in the operation of power and those two particular periods of history are moments when power is seen at its most potent is that something that you can recognize because I was wondering even though there's obvious differences between these two historical eras was your knowledge of one a kind of key to understanding the world of Nazi Germany? Um, well, I tend to approach it from the opposite direction. I, I'm, I'm more concerned with, you know, how people in a way um, acclimatize themselves to uh, the operation of power without really thinking about it so that they accept certain kinds of authority and that that quite often is, is quite creeping. And before they know it, they're in a situation where they're quite powerless to do anything about it. Um, you know, in a, in a, that's you know that's taken as red in a, in a military setting like the Roman army, where you know you join up and basically when you join any army, you are um, surrendering your authority of action and, and morality to a higher authority, and there's nothing you can do about it. And quite often you'll be um, asked to carry out quite questionable deeds. Um, in the case of Nazi Germany, the thing that really interested me there was just the slow slide into tyranny, um, which. You could see, I mean, it was there was no kind of secret uh, to the kinds of people that were in the Nazi party and, and the goals that they had. I mean, Hitler had very, very helpfully written Mein Kampf in which he laid it all out. Um, but there was a tendency of people to go, well, you know, that's just political bluster. Um, but, you know, really, he'll be responsible when he, when, when he has a bit of power and he has to kind of grow up. And that never happened. You know, what you get is... Um, by the time they come to power in 1933, they were ready for a complete takeover of uh, in every aspect of German society. So it wasn't just political. They were going right down through root and branch, through um, singing organizations, bands, anything that had any kind of loose social structure, um, they made uh, you know, accountable to the state. And you know, we're seeing a lot of things happening now, I mean, we, we, there was a demonstration outside Parliament yesterday about the new police bill. And when you start looking, picking through the detail of some of that, you're thinking, <laughs> this is basically a license to arrest and imprison people for 10 years for making a noise outside Parliament, you know. And I think we're in danger of sliding into uh, a similar form of dictatorship. Yeah, it, it'll be ameliorated by you know, nice things on television and a, and a degree of comfort. But our, 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 our political... Uh, powers, our democratic institutions, all those sorts of things, modes of expressing ourselves, all of that is slowly being eroded. And, you know, like the Germans, you know, we, we're going to have the danger of that one day waking up when it's too late. I think that's a fascinating point about liberty. And you, you kind of channel this discussion we're having now into the experiences of your main character, who in a way has done the quintessential 
keep your head down, try and stay out of it. I've got different um, worries in my life. I'm, you know, it's, the, it's almost like the fool's paradise. Some people might um, explain it as, but by 1939, you, being non-political isn't really, as it, it's not an easy option. Maybe it is an option, but people, are, if you're not a member of the party, because by this point, it's obviously a party state in Germany. If you're not a member, you're under suspicion. I think a lot of people take solace in quietism. You know, they will they will say, "Well, as long as I get on and do my job and keep my nose clean, you know, it's terrible these what these authoritarians are doing, um, but there's nothing I can do about it. And as long as it doesn't affect me too directly, you know, I and as long as I've got a job like being a police officer, where you think I'm doing something quite moral and I'm doing something quite objective, um, then I think you can." You can hide to an extent in that, but you know, ultimately, of course, across the series of, of novels that will follow Blackout, that's going to become more and more of a challenge. And that's why at the end of it, Heydrich, you know, when he's talking to him at the end of the novel, says, look, you know, that you, you investigators, you, you don't own the truth anymore. We do, you know, and, and that's kind of, you know, very much a, um, what was going on then, but you get a sense of that now in, in today's world as well. You know, mm. the truth is not something that's owned by those with expertise or authority in, 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 in knowledge and so on. It's owned by those who can get the message out quickest and most effectively. And that not, isn't always the truth. Mm. It's really something to ponder. I think we'll get into it now. So every time someone comes on this podcast, we always give them the opportunity to go back to a specific year in the past and then guide us through in three scenes. So which year would you choose? Well, it would be that, as I say, because, you know, once I started doing the research and I, I came across this, you know, it was looking into the popular opinion and the perception of the world around them in 1939. Um, that, that That is a kind of a turning point for me because you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. We know exactly what happens in, in the Second World War. But for it, it's interesting when you actually have to stop and accept that people who are in the middle of this process often have a very, very different perception of where they are in, in that process and, and what's going to happen around the corner. And, and it's quite different, you know, obviously to posterity. So mm -hmm. 1939 would be my choice. That winter of 1939 into 1940, I think, is, is a really interesting moment. But as, as a collective, you said, I think, a little bit earlier that people didn't think the war would last that long. Is that right? They didn't. And, and the thing you have to remember as well is, you know, when war against Poland you know, began and, and Britain and France declared war on Germany, there was no great show of joy or celebration of nationalism in Berlin. The street was silent. You know, the place was silent. Um, Hitler had planned for a big, uh, you know, some sort of celebrations. We're at war and we're doing the right thing, and you know, whipping up the, and and nobody turned out, and he was really angry about this and, and uh, took uh, Goebbels to task over it, and so that because you know this, they, they, Germany had been through a, a traumatic war only two decades or so earlier, and you know that was fresh in in, in their memory, and they thought, my God, if we you know the war starts, it'll be just like the last one, and it'll be you know, huge amounts of death and suffering and rationing and revolution and political instability and so on. So they were really, really worried. And that's why the, the Germans, you know, didn't greet uh, the war with the same sort of jubilation as they had the First World War, because they knew what it entailed this time. Um, and then when, after Poland uh, was conquered, there was a sort of sense of relief um, that is 
you know, usefully, uh, the Secret Service working for Hydri um, were very, very attuned to what was going on in the streets. They, they wrote regular kind of popular opinion reports on what people were saying in bars and pubs and so on. And so they, they, they provided the record. They provide us with this kind of an understanding of what people were thinking at the time. So they were saying, well, you know, good, Poland's out of the war. Surely now Britain and France will not want a war because they don't want it as much as we don't want it. And they were really quite optimistic. Now, the only time there was any kind of open celebration uh, in Germany during the Second World War was after the conquest of France. And then they went kind of ballistic because they thought, well, um, now, you know, we've, we've, uh, Poland's done, France is out of the war, Britain's defeated and, and caught up in its own island. Surely there will be peace. And this is something that we can actually celebrate. Okay. Well, we're going to go on a walkabout. I think this is the best way to term it, of Berlin in 1939. And we're going to stop and have a look at three different scenes. And you pick some really good ones for us. So shall we get it going? And um, sure. and I'll, I'll ask you, you know, we're in 1939. Where and when would you like to go first, please? Well, I, you know, of the three, I, get, I, I didn't put them in any particular time order during the day. Mm-hmm. We start with the station because it was... It was the Anhalter station that really um, got me going on this one because the S-Bahn killings, you know, that's to do with the railway. And then the Anhalter station is, is, is really, was a really, because it doesn't exist anymore, it was a really spectacular structure. It was for a long time, it was the biggest railway station uh, terminus in, in Central Europe and um, had, a, had a fairly kind of glorious history in its, in its heyday. Is this a kind um, of Grand Central equivalent, but in Berlin? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it catered for a lot of the traffic to the, the east, to the south and the southwest, um, of, of rail tracks coming into, into Berlin. And, um, you know, it had an absolutely huge number of people. There was something like 40, 1930, late 1930, something like 44,000, 45,000 people were going through the, the station every day. Um, and to put that in some kind of perspective, there are only 40-odd thousand people flying out of Tempelhof uh, over an entire year at that time. So mm-hmm. rail travel was a big, big thing. And then, of course, there's a kind of the romance of the steam train. I mean, we've, you know, we've all seen Sarana, Karenita and uh, Brief Encounter and things like that. And there's just some, there's something about steam trains. And, um, and it's also struck me, the reason why I specified it when, you know, you asked uh, time and place, I thought dusk, because I think dusk, particularly in winter, is brilliant. There's just something about the, the way the, the light goes, this kind of pale blue um, over the snow, and, and there's a kind of grey and bluey grey touch to the, the trees on the horizon and buildings and so on. And then you pierce that with, uh, you know, orange splashes of light. And it's an incredibly evocative time of day in winter, I think, particularly if there's snow, you know, everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought... That that that's that's kind of you know my my mental image of the of the Anhalt station at this particular time. Yeah, it's great to have your imagination onto it. I'm, it is, I suppose, it exists in the archive, in the record, in photographs by the score. Um, could you describe it to us in an architectural sense, or is that a bit tricky? No, no. I mean, it's you know, it's it's a railway terminus, and it's it's, it's, it's kind of huge rectangular building with a very ornate uh, facade onto the street at the front. And then there's this huge kind of curved glass ceiling, which rose something like 39 meters at its highest point. The Anhalt was about 175 meters by uh, 65 meters, um, the actual uh, interior area. 
and there are sort of trains going every few minutes coming in and out of the station. So you can imagine how busy it would be. And then there were also loads of shops um, dotted around the edge of it and a, a tunnel that ran under the road outside to one of Europe's biggest hotels, which was opposite. So, you know, it's one of these kind of travel nexus, shopping nexus, social life, there's cafes, there's bars. So it's, it's a real kind of um, meeting point for a cross section of German society and international society as well. So it would have been absolutely uh, an amazing place to, to be at that particular time um, and at that particular time of the day. Yeah, talking about the movement of troops. Of course, another thing from this age is that you had this almost like railway diplomacy. There'd be often meetings between leaders in railway carriages, or there would be probably from the First World War as well, I think, of the uh, the carriages that would pull up. And there, was there not actually a meeting between Hitler and Franco at around this time? Um, and I think that was to do with the railways as well. We're quite, I'm, I'm wildly off subject now, but it's, um, I think it went badly, which is a, a kind of a significant thing for the outcome of the war. But it, this idea of um, not them, not just being used in an everyday sense, but, you know, them being well, the they, they, were, transport they, they were highly luxurious things for heads of state, you know, and still are, you know, to a lesser, to a lesser degree. But, um, you know, they were a kind of um, portable salon, really. You know, if, if you're going to have a, a meeting luxury and you were to meet somewhere on the border, uh, quite often there weren't places on the border. So you would need to use, you know, a train would provide an ideal uh, uh, setting for that. And of course, you know, the train, again, is you know, it's quite central in, in certainly in Hitler's um, imagination, if you, re if you recall. I mean, when Germany had to surrender at the end of the First World War, they were... They did so. They signed the documents yeah. for capitulation on a railway carriage, um, I think near Versailles or something. And then when Hitler conquered France, he had the thing pulled out of the museum in which it was, just so that they could sign the treaty surrendering France to Germany. Oh, really? In the very same rail carriage, oh, yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, that's such an interesting little anecdote. The Holocaust is connected to this building as well because of the Jewish people who passed through. You know, there, there was always this the great question about the Holocaust, how much did people know? That's the one that lingers over it. Um, the question that just occurs to me at this point is if there were, if there was like kind of great traffic going out, was this like kind of a very public thing or or did people just not talk about it? Or is this not something that you've got to in your research of the period yet? Well, there is a sort of, there is a, a, a myth, frankly, that most Germans weren't aware of what was going on. It's, it's not a lie. Mm. You know, they knew exactly what was going on. There was a concentration camp just outside of Berlin, um, which they could hear what was going on inside from the, you know, the nearest neighborhoods. Anybody who worked on the railway system would know that like, these people were, you know, were being put on trains and sent east. Um, there were crowds of Jews pushed through the streets of Germany to the railway station, so they knew. And there were people who were being given apartments that had previously belonged to Jewish people. You know, they must have questioned what had happened to the previous occupants. So, um, and they are, you know, there is this also an argument that says, oh yes, it was only the SS and, and the, you know, the really bad guys in the Nazi regime who had committed atrocities. It's nonsense. The Wehrmacht was um, very much at the front of a lot of the atrocities that were committed. 
and it, it and it and it and it was a kind of generational divide because the senior officers weren't very you know keen on any of this. They were told by Hitler to be merciless, and quite a lot of them said, "Look, we're not going to do this." And a lot of them didn't pass the orders down the chain of command. But you know the, what you have to remember is that a lot of the soldiers serving in the army um, were people who had been raised uh, during the Third Reich with all the uh, educational refinements of propaganda that were put through the schools. So they were conditioned to already to see people from the East as you know, the Slavs, the Poles as subhuman, and therefore not worthy of any kind of respect or treatment that you would accord to a more civilized, in quote marks, uh, nation. So, you know, the idea that the Germans were unaware is just, is just not true. And it's this connection with a, a very prominent public building which I suppose is is part of that. Is this the reason you said earlier that this does not exist today? Was it dismantled after the war? Was it damaged in the bombings? What happened to the station? It was it was damaged heavily damaged by Allied bombing during the war. Um, there was uh, some attempt to repair the damage after the Second World War. Then, of course, you had the Cold War, and when all the rail links were cut to Berlin. Um, and rerouted to uh, a new station they built in, in East Berlin, um, there was no traffic coming. You know, there, was no, there was no purpose to the, to the railway station anymore. And so it was abandoned and, and eventually demolished. Um, there, was, you know, there, were, there were all sorts of plans when the Germanys were reunited again to uh, rebuild it as a railway station, but all of those were abandoned. And eventually um, it became, the, the, you know, what was left was the facade. Um, there's a, a sort of concert area where part of it is now in a park, um, but um, you know nothing of it really remains apart from the facade. So if we were to see it at all, a December dusk in 1939 would show it in its fullness, busy, Absolutely. bustling, loud, smoky. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's quite a thought. Okay, let's keep on. Let's keep on our way. Where would you like to go to if we leave the the railway station behind. If we sort of amble north from there, um, off to the right as we're going up, um, there's a, um, a place, the street called the Nieder Kirchnerstrasse, I think it is now, but back in the day it was a Prince Albertstrasse. And um, that's where the, uh, the Gestapo, the SS, the SD, uh, Kripo, um, all had their headquarters. That was the headquarters of the uh, Reich Main Security Office, um, or as they initialized it, RHSA. Um, and this was a, a, an elegant building. Um, again, doesn't exist anymore. Um, there is a fantastic museum there now uh, called the Topography of Terror, which is about uh, the operations of, the, of um, you know, the Gestapo and the SD, SS and the SD and so on, which, which was built over the ruins of, of what was there before. But in its day, it was this lovely ornate building um, which housed all the, the headquarters of, of all the security apparatus in, in um, Nazi Germany. And it became the RHSA, incidentally, in, in September 39, so just as, as the war began, when all these things were finally unified um, as a result of the war being fought and finally placed under Himmler's total control. So he had control over the absolute, uh, every agency of policing, intelligence, spying on people, and the whole purpose of the of this organization was to fight um, all the enemies of the, of the Reich, uh, however that may be kind of understood. So political opponents, religious opponents, racial opponents, all this sort of thing. And this was the nerve center 
of the, of the oppressive instrumentation of the regime. So if we talk about the geography of power within Berlin, this is where a lot of it's concentrated in this building. What kind of things went on inside? Was it a place of interrogation or was it an administrative place? I mean, as soon as you mentioned the word Gestapo, it's a word with such, you know, it's a word to send a shiver down your spine straight away. Was this where, um, you know, kind of dark deeds were done? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and it's important to, you know, the Gestapo wasn't a, a Nazi invention. It was there before. It was, a, um, it was a unit of the Prussian police force originally. And, um, you know, looking into kind of uh, you know, dodgy political people who might constitute a threat to the state and so on. So it was very much broadened out um, within that because, you know, it, it found its metier under a, 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 the Nazi dictatorship because, you know, and it expanded and you can make a career in it. But you mustn't forget that a lot of these people were police officers who transferred to the Gestapo. They weren't Nazi thugs. You know, these were highly professional people. And a lot of them weren't actually even members of the party. So the, the actual headquarters building, it was an administrative place and it was quite luxurious. And if you look at some of the pictures you can find of the building uh, interior from the time, it wasn't palatial in, in, in you know, the sense that plush cushions everywhere and so on. It was quite sparse. So big, big sort of staircases, uh, administration corridors with busts of Hitler um, and people sort of quietly going about their business. So there's very much of that going on. But the thing that, uh, you know, the dark side of it is there was a small gate further along the street from the building, which was where all the prisoners were taken in and then taken to the underground cells. And that's where all the nasty stuff um, happened. And part of the topography of Terror Museum is a preservation of a line of the remains of some of these cells. So you can see the original, um, I mean, you know, they're, they're not dank dungeons. They're kind of rather plain white tiled rooms of fairly small dimensions. And part of that is so they would keep the light on and, you know, they would do sleep deprivation as well as all the beatings and torture and so on. But it's all there, and once you know, you know what what was happening there, it it, it is a very very creepy place. Yeah. Uh, even now, um, I find it so. And that gate is still preserved. That still stands. The 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 gate where the prisoners were taken in. Yeah, the the Nazi regime is well known for its administrative rigor. There were documents kept of all sorts of things, even if they were subsequently destroyed. Is um. As you were researching the book and trying to get to grips with, you know, buildings like this, was it easy to find, you know, kind of personal accounts of what went on inside these places? Yeah, I mean, this, the, the, yes, the, they were very good at documenting things. I mean, but that's not, you know, the, the thing we have to bear in mind when we're talking about Nazi Germany is, you know, okay, a lot of record keeping, but a huge amount of um, duplication of effort and faction fighting and factionalism and so on. So that the idea that Germany, you know, the Nazi Germany was very, very efficient is, is very far from the truth. Um, it was just, a, it was more like, to be honest, Brazil, you know, the film, Terry Gilliam film, Brazil? Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah. That's what you should keep in your head. You know, far more, I mean, that was sinister enough, but a far more sinister yeah. version of that uh, is a far more accurate idea of you know, what Nazi Germany was like than some sort of uh, bureaucratic paradise where everything runs smoothly, you know, and mm. seamlessly. When I was in Italy a few years ago, my editor, we were talking about, you know, because I was thinking about this book then, and we were talking about it, and she said her father had been in the Italian resistance, and 
The thing that had most struck him was not the Gestapo people who tortured him. It was the female secretary who came into the room with tea and biscuits for the, uh, uh, or coffee and biscuits for the, the torturers, who didn't, pay, you know, just absolutely refused to you know, acknowledge him or recognize there was anything wrong going on. And that's what really stuck in his head. And then I was talking to my mother-in-law uh, just yesterday, and she was talking about a friend of hers who was a daughter of a German woman and um, a British uh, MP. Um, and she, was, she had been, her, both her parents were killed by the Nazis because they were involved with the, um, you know, the opposition against the regime. And she was sent to be raised at an SS uh, adoption uh, hostel. Uh, before she was sent to, you know, an SS family to be raised. And, you know, you're thinking, you know, when you hear these kind of very, very human, worm's eye view of, you know, what living under that kind of dictatorship is like, it really brings it home in a way that a, a grand sweeping history just doesn't. Hello, it's Peter here. We have now been working with our friends at Colourgraph for an entire year. Colourgraph, for those of you who do not know, is a website where you can buy colourised historical prints for your home, office or simply as presents. Occasionally over the last year, they've made custom images for us as well. Images of the Beatles, of JFK, of Oscar Wilde lounging on a sofa in New York City in 1882. We're delighted to be working with Colourgraph because the historical work they do is of such high quality and because it shows the past in a new and completely provoking way. The Oscar Wilde portrait is a great case in point. I'd looked at Napoleon Cerrone's photograph of him many times, but I'd never before appreciated the luxury of Wilde surrounds and the daring of his costume. You'll know just what I mean if you do look at it yourself. At Colourgraph, they hand print images like this and hundreds of others on museum grade paper in the south of England. So the images are guaranteed to last a century or more. With global shipping available, they make wonderful, unusual presents for any history fan anywhere. Do check them out at Colourgraph.co and remember to enter the code TTT at the checkout for an extra 10% off. Fascinating. Well, I don't, where do we go? I think it's probably time for us to keep going because we've got one more scene, which mm. is similar in some ways, but has a kind of very different clientele, we should say. Yeah. Uh, where should we Let's go? go? Yeah, somewhere happier. <laughs> um, so the last place I'd like to, you know, if we carry on going north and then turn up onto Den Linden towards Brandenburg Tor, on the left-hand side, we come to the Adlon Kempinski Hotel, as it is today. And it is still, you know, one of the, the most prestigious uh, hotels in, in Berlin. Uh, of course, it's another one of these things that have been reconstructed. The original one was um, damaged during the war and then eventually demolished and rebuilt um, within the sort of a broad appearance of the original structure, uh, but it's completely redesigned inside, so it doesn't bear any kind of resemblance. But at the time, you know, it, it was one of the, it was the first grand hotel in in um, in Berlin, and this was part of a movement more widely. It was the Americans who kicked it off because previously hotels had just been places where people went and stayed, um, and the Americans realised that well, no, actually, you know, you can make this into something more. It can be about big civic events. It can be about you know weddings, balls, all that sort of stuff. So they created these you know models like the Waldorf and um, in, in New York. So other nations began to copy this in, in um, towards the end of the nineteenth century. And 
it was a guy called the, I think his name was uh, Lorenzo Adlon. He was a, um, an entrepreneur and he persuaded the Kaiser that you know Berlin needed one of these hotels and he had just the building he wanted for it. It had to be bang, slap bang in the center of the city. Mm. And so he found this um, rather nice building that was uh, near the Brandenburg Gate, which he wanted, but the owners weren't happy to, to part with it. So um, he did a really good job on the Kaiser and the Kaiser gave him the authority and the power they needed to force the purchase, demolish the building and put the Adlon up. Um, so it became this, this kind of uh, social center of Germany. And then, you know, throughout the 20s and 30s, you know, if you look at the, the people who were staying there, you, you know, you've got Charlie Chaplin, uh, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Albert Einstein. You know, it's, it's a complete who's who of international celebrity came to this hotel. And I suppose this this kind of leads me into a question more specifically about 1939 and the tail end of it, because there was a great deal of glamour around the Nazi regime in the beginning, wasn't there? And they were, for some people, um, and we can look at particularly the British aristocracy were, you know, kind of taken in, not not to make too sweeping a statement, but there was, there was um, yeah, that air of fashion, of, of style. What had happened? Um, what's going on with the, you know, the, the, the stylish people of culture in... Well, this is why I think the Adlon's an interesting place because, um, you know, yeah, the, you know, there was the, the Nazis loved all the kind of the, the glamour and the, and the glitz, but you know, they weren't terribly popular with um, the genuine kind of celebrity aristocratic uh, castes in, in Germany who saw them as, for what they were, really crass arrivists. Mm. So there was a certain friction between the Nazi hierarchy and these people. And, and you know, they, they were, you know, people like Goering building his massive estates and buying all the good stuff and the fine stuff. But, you know, these, these were essentially Philistines filling their, their, their palaces with um, high art and hoping that it rubbed off on them and, ma and made them respectful. And the thing that was quite interesting is that the Nazis didn't actually tend to hang out uh, at the the Adlon, they 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 stayed up. They tended to frequent the Kaiserhof um, uh, Hotel uh, about you know five blocks away. That was opposite the propaganda industry and close to the um, the Chancellery, so more towards the political centres. So that's where they tend to be. So what you get at the Adlon is 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 the old social, um, the, you know, the glittering social life still continues there, but it tends to be people who are either on the fringes of the regime or you know, just don't want anything to do with it. Um, there are Nazis there, you know, the ones who, are, uh, who do have a kind of aristocratic connections, um, but you know, most of them tend to sort of hang out uh, in the beer hall at the Kaiserhof down the road. The, the history of Berlin throughout the 20th century is quite varied, isn't it? And I suppose they've been left with this challenge of, um, of how do you deal with material history almost in a way? What, what do you replace? What, needs to be where where do you need to put a plaque where do you need to say nothing i think there's something else that really impressed me about uh, berliners um is this sense that you know for them history you know in it, what i found very disturbing in britain is history is frequently referenced um by allusions to ah oh, great britain the empire when we were a world power blah 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 you know and there's this kind of history as a nostalgic crutch um in germany in berlin particularly you know they don't forget history. They see history as something that is, you know, a warning, uh, something that can teach us about the dangers of certain things. You know, they see it as a very much an instructive thing rather than some sort of, uh, 
mythic past to get all dewy-eyed about. And I think that's really, really healthy. Yeah, it is, because it's a sense of confronting the past, living with it, but um, perhaps not... Um, what's the word? It's not turning it into a sapia story as, yeah. well, as, you know, as we I, might... I remember a book I had um, at school when I, when I was you know, eight, 10 or 12 or something reading it, and it was called The Story of Britain. And it, you know, it was just this endlessly progressive narrative about how we rose to be a world power and not, weren't we great and all the rest of it. And now, you know, although the empire is gone, we, we are still celebrated as the mother of, of democracy and so on. And you're thinking, well, you know, there is so much that is elided in that kind of representation of history. You know, there's no mention of slavery. There's no mention of the people who are indigenous to these countries having a, a sort of authentic history before we pitched up. Um, you know, there is no account of the kind of the problems of, of de-imperialization and so on. So, you know, the, what you, the counter to that, of you know, if you look at a German textbook, I would, I would imagine is, you know, okay, these things happen. And, this, and it's like if you go to the uh, German museums, the German history of Germany uh, museum in Berlin, you know, it's very much aware of the trends in society and fashion in the late 19th century that created this sort of heightened sense of militarism uh, in German culture that drove them to the First World War. Um, and you just, and, and, and it's, it, you know, the museum is set out in a way that really exposes that and sort of explains where that came from and why, why it's this kind of thing you need to avoid. Mm. How interesting. Um... I wanted just to get back to December 1939 before we finish. And there's one thing that we've not really talked about, and it's, at the com it's completely at the heart of your story. And it's this idea of the blackout. If you're walking through the streets, it is a dark space, isn't it? Have there been any air raids by this point by the RAF or are they expecting anything? Do you know where we are in terms of that story? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 you have to be very, you know, aware that both sides, um, like I said before, you know, they, they, there was a sense that you know, we can resolve this without going into a full-out military confrontation. So what was happening is a, a lot of the RAF bombers, and to, at great risk, were flying over German cities and dropping pamphlets saying that, you know, Germany had done wrong and, and, and there could be peace if they got rid of you know, the Fuhrer and you know, th things like this. Um, and the Germans were doing sort of similar sorts of activity. You know, so it was a night, yeah, you know, there was a sort of, yeah, there was a blackout and yes, there was a danger of uh, air attack and, and there were uh, false alarms and there were practice alarms and people panicked. But there was also a, a, a set, creeping sense of cynicism fairly early on about whether there, were, there really was an air raid or an aircraft being spotted and people were, you know, quite a lot of people were beginning to hang back in their flats and not go to the shelters. So uh, it, it is this sort of sense of unreality and cynicism mm -hmm. and a kind of growing feeling that, you know, the regime isn't telling us half the, half the story. The dread of what might be lost almost. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a great setting for a novel. It's a novel that really races long, like all of your stories. And I think your readers are going to have a treat. But I've got one last question for you on the, the podcast before we finish. Mm -hmm. um, if you could bring a tangible object back with you from this time, from 1939 to today, maybe to have in your writing office to, um, to gaze at occasionally, um, what would you like? 
Well, it's, it's something quite simple, actually. There was a blackout poster published by the propaganda ministry um, of this allied bomber uh, with a sort of skeleton riding on the back of it, throwing bombs down onto a street where a little, you know, where one window is open and light is streaming out. And, you know, it, it's a lovely kind of depiction of the, the terror of the enemy that the, the Nazis are trying to impose on the population, um, you know, just to absolutely scare them out of their wits about stepping out of line just even by one slither of light of an open door. Mm. And I think, you know, I'd love to have that as a kind of on my wall as a, a reminder of just how much you can terrify people into obedience and the dangers mm. of that. Well, that's completely at the heart of what we've been talking about, because we've, I suppose, been talking about 1939, but equally, equally, we've been talking about um, today and the role of history and the way that history does repeat in, in today's society. Simon Scow, it's been a real fascinating conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you for coming on Travels Through Time. It's been a pleasure. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to the novelist Simon Scarrow about Berlin in the year 1939. That's, of course, the historical setting for his new novel, Blackout, which is available to buy right now. For more about this episode, as ever, do head to tttpodcast.com, where you can see maps and prints and explore other episodes on World War II, including Andrew Roberts on Churchill in 1940 and Peter Caddick Adams on the D-Day beaches. I'm going to be back next week with the journalist James McCauley. Till then... Thank you for listening today. Goodbye.